Let's get started. Please join me, joining me in welcoming our readers tonight, Kurt Beatty, Julie Brisbane, Paul Dorbett, and Bill Radke. This is our 12th annual Rogue's Christmas. And I'm delighted to have on stage next to me, let's see if I can avoid knocking over the stand, my uh, a, a fellow I've been proud to know most of my adult life, uh, Mr. Seattle history himself, Paul Dorpat. Now, Paul and I, by the skin of our teeth, and even through a Chinese trade war, have managed to publish and release a new book comprised of about 100 selections of his more than 1,800 columns in the Seattle Times. And it's called Seattle Now and Then, The Historic Hundred. And well, you can look at a copy out in the, in the lobby, I think, at intermission. And buy a couple, too. <laughs> you know, I think that Paul has supplied a holiday welcome for all of our programs for the past 12 years, going back to 2007. And we'll continue that tradition this evening. And so we're going to, I, I ask you to join us for the Dorpat family classic sing-along, the Little Birdies song, which we will teach you now, and Paul and I will attempt to. There's motions. There's arm motions and hand motions that go with it. So, so be prepared. I will, I will call out the words like an old-fashioned preacher with, you know, when the, when the congrega congregation doesn't have a hymnal. So I'll call out the words. Uh, and we'll, we'll give it a shot here. So, <clears throat> what do you want to do for our okay, first Okay, well, let's try to remember how Dad would have sung this. Okay. You want to yeah. tell us, because I have well, a recording. Well, this was uh, something taught uh, to us and many others by Dad, who was a Lutheran preacher and looked for opportunities to escape the gospel. <laughs> and this was one of them right here. So I first heard this at a Lutheran minister's conference in Bend, Oregon. I was about 12 years old, and I loved it for the same reasons. So, you ready? Well, I'll okay. give you a verse on it. It's going to be a long winter. What will the poor buddies do then, the poor things? Okay, so that the enough? first, yeah, that's enough, and I'll call it, we'll, I'll call it out. He's the boss. I'll call it out, and, and Paul will lead you in song. So I'll just be your, your, uh, your vocal hymnal. All right. It's going to be a long winter, and make that long, long. What will the, the poor birdies, and if you have a Scandinavian or Danish or, or even a German accent, you know, get rid of the THs and just turn them into Ts and Ds. It's going to be a long winter. What will the poor birdies do then, the poor tings? Okay, so Paul will lead and just follow as best you can. We'll stop and give you the, the hand mo motions and, the, and the, the extras here. Okay. Oh, that's right. Yeah. That's right. We'll Thank teach you. it as we go. Okay. Okay. Go start, Paul. Oh. It's going to be a long winter. winter. What will the poor birdies do then, the poor thing? They'll fly to the south. They'll fly to the south. Mit their worms in their mouths. With their, their worms in their, their mouths. Mouth. And they'll put their heads under their wings, deportings. And, and they'll, they'll put their heads under their wings, deportings. And after you put your heads under your wings, deportings, you want to lower yourselves just a little bit, like you're preparing for a crash in an airplane, you know, when they say, so lower down. All right. You know, you do this better than Dad ever did it. Mm. Really. Thank you, Paul. Yeah. Well, let's do the second verse. It's going to be a long spring. Same general theme here. There are four verses, as you might imagine. It's going to be a long spring. What will the poor birdies do then, the poor things? They'll fly to the sky just to keep themselves dry. Just to keep themselves dry. And they'll put their heads under their wings, the poor things. Oh, that was lovely. Some of these, some of these people already know this, Gene. Well, I know. There's always newbies. So 
If you've sung this before, let's, let's work with some harmonies here. So, okay, if you know this, let's get some harmony in the mix here. It's easy, it's not difficult. I'll, I'll provide the first guest, first go around. All right, so third season. It's gonna be a long summer. It's gonna be a long summer. What will the poor birdies do then, the poor things? They fly to the, oh, they fly to the pool, used to keep themselves cool. They fly to the pool, used to keep themselves cool. And they'll put their heads under their wings, the poor things. Okay. Very good. Nicely done. Last verse. What were you going to say? No, I don't have anything to say at all, Gene. Okay. okay. It's going to be a long fall. Is it fall? Is that where we're at? Yeah, we, we, we did three. We did three, oh, yeah. Okay. This is number four. It's going, going to be a long fall. What will the poor birdies do then? The poor things, they'll fly to the barn, used to keep themselves warm. They'll fly to the barn, used to keep themselves warm. And they'll put their heads under their wings, the poor things. Oh, bravo. Thank you so much. Nicely done. So, E.B. White, the writer of Stuart Little and Charlotte's Web, as well as the English language style guide, The Elements of Style, was also a contributor to The New Yorker for more than 50 years. And as a young man in his early 20s, he worked at the Seattle Times as a cub reporter until he was fired. And in his journals, he was 24 when he was fired. And in his journals, he recounts, as a diarist, I was a master of suspense, leaving to the reader's imagination everything pertinent to the action of my play. I operated generally on too high a level for routine reporting, and had not at that time discovered the eloquence of facts. I can see why the Times fired me. A youth who persisted in rising above facts must have been a headache to a city editor. So now to conclude our opening ceremonies, Paul and I are going to read together this Christmas greeting by E.B. White, which appeared in the, the news of the world in, in The New Yorker in 1952. So you can make some allowances for 1952, but others seem strangely pertinent today. Yeah. <clears throat> Should I begin? Yes, please. Okay. From this high midtown hall, undecked with boughs, unfortified with mistletoe, we send forth our tinsel greetings as of old to friends, to readers, to strangers of many conditions in many places. Merry Christmas to uncertified accountants, <laughs> to tellers who have made a mistake in addition, to girls who have made a mistake in judgment, to grounded airline passengers, and to all those who can't eat clams. We greet with particular warmth people who wake and smell smoke. To captains of riverboats on snowy mornings, we send an answering toot at this holiday time. Merry Christmas to intellectuals and other despised minorities. <laughs> Merry Christmas to the musicians of Muzak and men whose shoes don't fit. Greetings of the season to unemployed actors and the blacklisted everywhere who suffer for sins uncommitted, a holly thorn in the thumb of compilers of lists. <laughs> Greetings to wives who can't find their glasses and to poets who can't find their rhymes. Merry Christmas to the unloved, the misunderstood, the overweight. Joy to the authors of books whose titles begin with the word, how? <laughs> As though they knew. 
Greetings to people with a ringing in their ears. Greetings to growers of gourds. Uh, to shears of sheep. And to makers of change in the lonely underground booths. Merry Christmas to old men asleep in libraries. Merry Christmas to people who can't stay in the same room with a cat. <laughs> we greet, too, the boarders in boarding houses on 25 December, the duenas in Central Park in Fairweather and Fowl. Young lovers, or I should say, and young lovers who got nothing in the mail. Merry Christmas to people who plant trees in city streets. Merry Christmas to people who save prairie chickens from extinction. Greetings of a purely mechanical sort to machines that think, plus a sprig of artificial holly. Joyous Yule to Cadillac owners whose conduct is unworthy of their car. <laughs> Merry Christmas to the defeated. And forgotten. The inept. Uh, joy to all dandy prats and burglars. We send, most particularly and most hopefully, our greetings and our prayers to soldiers and guardsmen on land and sea and in the air. The young men doing the hardest things at the hardest time of life. To all such, Merry Christmas, blessings, and good luck. We greet the secretaries designate. The president-elect. Merry Christmas to our new leaders. Peace on earth, goodwill and good management. Merry Christmas to couples, unhappy in doorways. Merry Christmas to all who think they're in love, but aren't sure. <laughs> Greetings to people waiting for trains that will take them in the wrong direction. <laughs> to people doing up a bundle, and the string is too short. <laughs> to children with, with sleds and no snow. We greet ministers who can't think of a moral, gag men who can't think of a joke. Greetings, too, to the inhabitants of other planets. See you soon. <laughs> and last, we greet all skaters on small natural ponds at the edge of woods towards the end of afternoon. Merry Christmas, skaters. Ring steel. Grow red sky. Die down wind. Merry, Merry Christmas, Christmas to all, and, and to, to all a, a good, good morrow. morrow. Well, I'm going to bring up a friend of mine who's been a professional actress in this town and all over the country for more than 30 years. She's the co-founder and executive director of the Siegel Project, a theater company dedicated to the works of Anton Chekhov. Roles with the project include Arkadina in The Siegel, Olga in Three Sisters, and Renovskaya in The Cherry Orchard. She has performed leading roles on all of Seattle's major stages and across the country. And she is the proud recipient of the Lunt Fontaine Fellowship. Julie, come on up. So what's up next? What are you doing? What's, what's on the docket right now? Up next, everybody, Uncle Vanya coming to Act Theater in February. Yes, I'm not in this one, so if you've gotten a letter from me, it's because I'm raising all the money. So thank you. In advance, come see it. It's going to be gorgeous and, and But you were just cast in a lead role at the rep. I was! Oh! work yes. to be working to be getting health weeks so I get to um, do uh, she stoops to conquer at Seattle shakes and then uh, tiny beautiful things at Seattle rep that's wonderful yeah yeah so I'm very excited well tonight we're doing something completely different uh, it's an added something to rogues Christmas and what we've done to adding to our lineup is audience submitted stories of holiday mischief and mayhem amidst the mistletoe and <laughs> Julie is now going to read the first submission from Catherine Freeman Houle called Left Behind. Mm. I saw my opportunity as my family and the other parishioners in the pew rose for the final hymn. The long wood seat was my escape route to the center aisle. 
I scooted behind the woolen skirts and pleated pants to the aisle and ran out of the church knowing that I had a good ten minutes before the midnight mass crowd would make its way to the parking lot. I had plenty of time. Oh, the joy! If I got to the car first, the radio would be all mine for once. I would get to sit in the middle front seat and control the dial. Throughout my 11 years, I'd angled for it, sliding into position before my sisters and my brother, only to be scolded and sent to the way back in our station wagon. Every trip my family took together, I hoped for that lucky chance, and almost every trip was a failure. Tonight's trip had been particularly hopeless because we were giving a bunch of friends a ride to church, and to be polite, I had to sit in the way back, crouched and looking backwards, blinded by the headlights of the cars behind us. <laughs> it had snowed hard throughout Mass and was snowing still. In the church parking lot, the cars were covered by a layer of white that softened all details and turned each vehicle into a blob. I ran to our station wagon and hopped in. By now, the windshield and the windows were covered with snow, and in the dark freezing, I warmed myself with thoughts of sibling jealousy and the music I would choose. Time passed slowly, but soon enough, I heard goodbyes, Merry Christmases, and car ignitions catching. And then, nothing. <laughs> I waited for my parents. <laughs> Suddenly, the shotgun door opened, exposing a skirt and legs I didn't recognize. What are you doing in my car? demanded an old woman. Well, confronted by this angry adult, I was stunned and mute. Get out, she pointed, and meekly I obeyed. She climbed in and closed the door. Fat, dizzy snowflakes swirled through the cone of her headlights, and I watched until the station wagon turned onto the street and drove out of sight. The parking lot was empty. I was alone, and it was Christmas Eve. Nothing bad could happen. Fifteen minutes later, in my family station wagon, my little sister asked, Hey, Mom, where's Katie? Katie? My mom called. And then, Katie? Katie, cut it out. Stop hiding. Followed by a hectic counting of heads and the horrified realization that I wasn't among the double of kids in the back. Frantic silence reigned as my dad gunned it back to the church. <laughs> The snow was still falling when our station wagon slid into the parking lot and pulled alongside me. Through clenched teeth, my mom ordered me to climb in. I was surprised and confused. Why was she so angry? All I'd wanted to do was control the dial. After a few sharp questions, we took the icy road home. No one said a word. Silent night, holy night. All was calm and crouched once again in the way back. Far from the radio, the headlights were bright. Yeah. Okay, there was, a, there was a late submission, and it's only a, a minute long, but it was so horrifyingly awful. I handed it to Julie right before... It's, it was from Karen Kent, and if some of you might know Adam Wogue, the, the Seattle Times writer and the, and the author, and, well, his wife was a nurse in Vietnam, and so she sent this in this afternoon, I had to throw it in and throw it at Julie, so bear with us and listen to this. <laughs> Christmas in Vietnam for us Red Cross donut dollies meant that we were flown to fire bases to serve Christmas dinner. The weather was great. The men loved seeing us arrive with the food by helicopters. The food was taken in metal containers, and unfortunately, the dressing had become contaminated. An entire unit of men got food poisoning, and because I ate with them, I also got sick. I was in a MASH hospital for three weeks. At first, they didn't know which ward to put me on because the healthier, hornier men would bug me. 
I ended up in the post-operative ward and spent Christmas and New Year's listening to moans and groans as men awoke from the anesthesia, not to mention North Vietnamese prisoners being interrogated in the next tent. Merry Christmas. Well... So our next writer, Augustin Burroughs, is a screenwriter, a memoirist, an essayist. And Burroughs has a unique uh, uh, life. He began, he dropped out of school after sixth grade and decided to become a writer. It took him a number of years, but he, he got his, well, not that long, he got his GED at 17. And, but over the intervening years, he's now in his late 40s, early 50s, over the intervening years, he's certainly become one of the dead-on funniest, most insightful writers we've ever featured at Rogue's Christmas. Joining us tonight to read an excerpt from his memoir, You Better Not Cry, is host of KUW's The Record and Week in Review at Noon, Bill Radke. For those who might listen to this on the radio, um, you know the game where you have to guess how many jelly beans are in the jar? You could play that with the cats and the Santa hats on what I'm wearing. So you just have to imagine it from there. I will just say that, number one, there's nothing wrong with internet shopping. There is nothing wrong with eggnog. There is nothing wrong with bourbon. The thing about ingredients is how you combine them. And uh, that's sort of the theme of this piece. Okay. Augustine Burroughs, this is called And Two Eyes Made Out of Coal. The photograph on the cover of my mother's Woman's Day magazine appealed to me enormously. A gumdrop bejeweled gingerbread house from a spun sugar fantasy world. The tall peaked roof was swirled with mounds of frosting snow, glittering crystal sugar icicles hung from the eaves, and the walls, smooth sheets of pure gingerbread had been pressed into raw sugar, giving them the appearance of stucco. Hansel and Gretel had been fools to abandon such a house after they cooked the witch alive in her own oven. I absolutely would have claimed the house as my own and used the witch's skull as a soup tureen. When I thought about it, Hansel and Gretel deserved to die for their lack of imagination and poor real estate choices. But that was just a stupid fantasy, a story for babies. This gingerbread house was real. There was a recipe. Gingerbread dreams, build this foolproof fantasy house, directed the headline. I would make it as a surprise for my mother. I would bake the gingerbread house and I wouldn't get any blood on it and it would be the center of our Christmas table. Won't she be surprised, I thought, when she comes upstairs in six hours and sees my glorious gingerbread house resting on a plate, two candy cane trees beside the front door. The word foolproof spoke to me because my older brother often said, I believe you may be a complete fool, quite nearly an idiot. I'm going to have to find out what kind of pesticides were in use when our mother was carrying you. <laughs> if even a fool could make the house on the cover of this magazine, I should be able to make it too. Then again, I knew that merely boiling water was not foolproof, not when you got sidetracked by Fat Albert and the Cosby Kids and forgot about the water, which then evaporated and the pot fused to the burner of the stove. Had they actually tested this recipe on a fool, I wondered? <laughs> but this was no pot of boiling water. This was only gingerbread and gumdrops. It was just plain silly to be worried about candy canes. No, the gingerbread house would look exactly like the one on the magazine cover. I knew it would. I loved to experiment at the kitchen, and if I ever used a recipe, it was only for inspiration. Recipes, I felt, were for the unimaginative. However, with this particular project, I would do my best to follow the recipe to the letter, and where that wasn't possible, I would at least stay true to its spirit. Molasses, whatever the hell that was, sure wasn't in our cupboard, but I knew it was a liquid. Because you were supposed to gently pour it onto the other ingredients. 
So I used some of my mother's cooking sharing. Something she herself often incorporated into fancier recipes. We had flour. Because the gingerbread house was gingerbread colored, I used the brown flour made out of wheat and not the other flour made out of white. <laughs> and wasn't baking soda the same thing as baking powder? I thought so. So I used the latter. As for the spices, cinnamon, cardamom, nutmeg, ginger, fennel, I skipped them all. Because right there next to the Tabasco sauce and peeking out from behind a bottle of my mother's saccharin was a little jar of allspice. Just the name tasted like gingerbread. It was all the spices I needed, plus the rest of them. It was all of them, allspice. Briefly, I worried about the spectacular mess I had somehow created. I had managed to use my mother's entire set of six white mixing bowls, her electric beater, a number of pans, each of which I had greased with corn oil, and assorted spatulas, knives, forks, a cheese grater, and my father's hammer from the basement. It was just a shame that I wouldn't be able to help my mother wash all these dishes, but I couldn't get all my Band-Aids wet, so she would have to do them herself. I smiled. She always said that art was born from chaos. The creative process can be very messy. You have to be comfortable with that. I was comfortable. I poured the thick, gluey batter onto trays and baked it stiff. Prying the gingerbread, which was nearly black, from the cookie sheets, I set about to assemble my gingerbread dreams fantasy house. Gloomily, I came to accept the fact that it was a structural impossibility to create a steep, peaked roof like in this picture. The gingerbread kept breaking. The instant coffee I had added for color must have made it brittle. So I gave the building a flat roof, like the modern house down the street that my mother often admired. And then I spent an hour applying white frosting from a can for snow which looked nothing like mounds of snow, but like piles of insulation left behind by a work crew that had gone on strike. It looked actually like the house even farther down the street, the one built in the center of a dirt field, with plastic stapled to the outside in place of siding and asphalt nailed here and there to patch holes. My mother hated that house. It ruins the entire damn street. I had made that house in black gingerbread. If only I had two miniature flat tires and an upside-down swing set to place in front. I cut out more windows, two rows of them. Immediately, this looked wrong. It looked non-residential. The deeper into the project I tumbled, the more dire the results. The colorful gumdrops I'd attached randomly to the front facade didn't look cheerful. They looked like what they were, an easy, colorful ploy to manipulate the eye and distract it from the wanton ugliness right before it. The more I did to try and decorate my way out of the monstrosity I had built, the worse it looked. By not even the most elastic stretch of the imagination was this a gingerbread house. Four walls, a flat ceiling, rows of windows, four stories high. I had built a gingerbread public housing tenement. A little gingerbread slum. And I could populate my small-scale confectionery representation of urban blight with the deformed gingerbread men that I had baked alongside the cake. Men with misshapen arms and legs. Heads that had expanded into great amoeba-like structures. I had baked an entire population of pitiful, armless, and legless subjects, each with a physical deformity worthy of the most corrupt circus. I didn't even bother to frost my gingerbread misfits. Why shame them with frivolous frosting hats and raisin eyes? Let them be plain and blind. I could give them that much dignity. I would think of them as a large family who had unfortunately farmed too near a leaking nuclear power plant. And now they only wanted to live the remainder of their sad lives in the solitude of the cookie jar, not displayed on a platter near my public housing unit. It was almost like I had baked a scene for the CBS Evening News with Walter Cronkite. My mother made a bold and insincere fuss. Oh, it's just precious, she said. Precious being the word Southern women have always used to describe the indescribable, the unsavory. 
It's also what my grandmother had said after peering at the giant nose on the baby of a friend's daughter. Precious meant so positively hideous I could produce vomit this instant and without the aid of my index finger. She was reduced to bland compliments. It's so original. I like it very much more than the picture in the magazine. When I asked her, but doesn't it look like one of the slums on the news? Like something out of Springfield? She replied, no, honey, not at all. But I could see in her eyes the distinct flicker of recognition. And, and then agreement. Her eyes said, exactly. I knew that what I had constructed was an insult to the picture in the magazine, to the entire magazine itself, and to baking in general. If the people at Woman's Day had ever saw my gingerbread horror, they would cancel my mother's subscription. Why hadn't I followed the, the directions exactly? Why had I thrown the measuring cups to the wind and decided to spread my architectural wings? Worse, though, than the visual presentation was the sensation of the gingerbread house inside the mouth. First, the teeth made hard, damaging contact with the bathroom tile-like cake. Next, the tongue was burned by the cheap, hardened vanilla frosting. A single bite was enough to onset juvenile diabetes. Still, the front door and a tiny portion of roof were politely sampled. A number of gumdrops had been removed, then placed back. The dog refused a chunk of window, even though it was caked with frosting snow. This very same dog did not hesitate to eat the wadded-up ball of aluminum foil she found on the floor next to the trash can. And so my fiasco sat in ruin on a platter in the center of the dining table. Now no longer a food item, but a stand-in for a decoration. And then my brother appeared. He had briefly left his bedroom and all the electric equipment in there to forage for food. With one swift and decisive motion of the hand, he cracked a third of the roof away from the structure and got as much of it into his mouth as possible before I could scream at him and tell him to stop. But I wasn't going to scream at him. My mouth was open in amazement, not anger. I was just waiting for him to snarl in disgust and spit the partially chewed roof right out onto the floor. You like it? I asked, amazed. He shrugged. It's okay, I guess. <laughs> Why? Did you put something funny in it? He said suspiciously, holding the last corner of roof out away from him. No, it, it's edible, I said. There's no tricks. He nodded, then he devoured the fragment in his hand and returned to the cake for more, breaking away nearly one entire wall of my holiday housing unit. Well, since nobody else is going to eat it, he said, carrying the wall away with him, down the hall and back to his room. I looked at the wretched structure on the table and I smiled. My gingerbread hovel had suddenly turned into a loved, or at least somewhat appreciated, gingerbread home after all. So we start the second half of our show with one of our favorite writers, John Updike. Through his long and prolific tenure, Updike wrote hundreds of short stories and essays and produced his remarkable novels at a rate of about one a year. Tonight's Rye and Rufel, The Christmas Carol, is a classic and will be read and partially sung to us by a Seattle treasure. Curator of Short Stories Live for Town Hall for more than a decade. Director Emeritus of Act Theater. In fact, he just directed this year's A Christmas Carol. He'll be appearing in Urinetown this spring, a joint musical production of ACT on the Fifth Avenue. Actor, writer, director, bon vivant, he lived to tell this tale, Kurt Beatty. Yeah. All right. The Carol Sing by John Updike. Surely, 
One of the natural wonders of Tarbox was Mr. Burley at the town hall carol sing. How he would jubilate. How he would, God rest those merry gentlemen, how he would boom out when the male voices became good King Wenceslas. Mark my footsteps, good my page, tread thou in them boldly. Thou shalt find the winter's rage, freeze thy bloodless coldly. Oh, when he hit a good oh. Standing beside him was like being inside a great transparent Christmas ball. He had what you'd have to call a God-given bass. This year, we other male voices just peck at the tunes. Wendell Huddleston, whose hardware store has become the pizza place where the dropouts collect after dark. Squire Wentworth who is still getting up petitions to protect the marsh birds from the atomic power plant. Lionel Merson, lighter this year by about three pounds of gallstones. <laughs> and that selectman whose freckled bald head looks like the belly of a trout. And that fireman whose face is bright brown all the year round from clamming. And the widow Corved's beaded, bearded son, who went into divinity school to avoid the draft and the Bisbee boy, who no sooner was back from Vietnam than he grew a beard and painted his car, car every color of the rainbow, and the husband of the new couple that moved this September into the Whitman Place on the beach road. He wears thick glasses above a little mumble of a mouth tight as a keyhole, but his wife appears perky enough. They looked up and saw a star Shining in, in the east beyond them far And to the earth it gave great light And so it continued both day and night She's wearing a flouncy little Christmassy number <laughs> Red with white polka dot dots One of those dresses so short that when she sits down on the old plush deacon's bench, she has to help it with a hand to tuck under her bottom, otherwise it wouldn't. A bit bright of a girl with long thighs, glossy as pond ice. She smiles nervously up over her cup of cinnamon stick punch, wondering why she is here in this dusty, drafty public place. We must look monstrous to her, we tarbox old timers. And she has never heard Mr. Burley sing, but she knows something is missing this year. There is something failed, something hollow. Hester Hartner sweeps wrong notes into every chord. Arthritis, arthritis and indifference. The first good joy that Mary had, it was the joy of one, to see the blessed Jesus Christ when he was first her son. Now, the old upright of Pickering for most of the year has its keyboard turned to the wall beneath the town zoning map, its top piled high with rolled up plot plans filing for variances. The town hall was built, strange to say, as a Unitarian church around 1830. But it didn't take around here, Unitarianism. <laughs> the sea air killed it. <laughs> you need big trees for a shady mystic mood, or at least a lake to see yourself in like they have in Concord. So the town took over the shell and ran a second floor through the air of the sanctuary between the balconies, offices and courtroom below, more offices in this hall above. You can still see the Doric pilasters along the walls, the top halves. They used to use it more. There were the Tarbox theatricals twice a year and political rallies with placards and straw hats and tambourines and get-togethers under this or that local auspice and town meetings until we went representative. <laughs> but now, not even the holly the ladies of the Grange have hung around can cheer it up, can chase away the smell of dust and must of cobwebs, too high to reach, and rat's nests in the piano. 
that faint sour tang of blueprints. And Hester lately has taken to chewing eucalyptus drops. And him to serve God give us grace, O lux beata trinitas. The little wife in polka dots is laughing now. Maybe the punch is getting to her. Maybe she's getting used to the look of us. Strange people look ugly only for a while. <clears throat> Until you begin to fill in those tufty monkey features with a little history and stop seeing their faces and start seeing their lives. Regardless, it does us good to see her here, to see young people at the carol sing. Oh, God, we need new blood. This time of the year is spent in good cheer, and neighbors together do meet, and sit by the fire with friendly desire each other in love to greet. Old grudges forgot are put in the pot, all sorrows aside they lay. The old and the young doth carol this song to drive the cold winter away. Well, at bottom it's a woman's affair a chance in the darkest of months to put on some gaudy clothes and get out of the house. <laughs> Those old holidays weren't scattered around the calendar by chance. Harvest and seed time, seed time and harvest, the elbows of the year. The women do enjoy it. They enjoy jostle of most any kind in my limited <laughs> experience. The widow Corvode is as full of rouge and purple as an old time scolet square tart when her best hope is burial on a Sunday with no frost on the ground. <laughs> Mrs. Hortense, broad as a barn door, yet her hands putting on a duchess airs. Mamie Niven, sporting a sprig of mistletoe in her neck brace. <laughs> they miss Mr. Burley. He never married and was everybody's gallant for this occasion. He was the one to spike the punch, and this year they let young Corvo do it. Maybe that's why little Miss Polka Dots can't keep a straight face and giggles across the music like a purring saw. Adeste fideles leati triumphantes, venite, venite in Bethlehem. Oh, still that old tussle, V versus Winite, the TH is hard or soft. <laughs> Education is what divides us. People used to actually resent it the way Burley, with his education, didn't go to some city, didn't get out. Exeter, Dartmouth, a year at the Sorbonne, then 30 years of Tarbox. By the time he hit 50, he was fat and fussy, arrogant too. Last thing, he two or three times told Hester to pick up her tempo, presto, Hester, not andante. <laughs> never married and never really worked. Burley Hosiery, that his grandfather had founded, was shut down and the machine sold south before Burley got his manhood. He built himself a laboratory instead and was always about to come up with something perfect, the perfect synthetic substitute for leather, the harmless insecticide, the beer can that turned itself into mulch. <laughs> Some said at the end he was looking for a way to turn lead into gold. Well, that was just malice. Anything high attracts lightning. Anybody with a name attracts malice. When it happened, the papers in Boston gave him six inches and a photograph, 10 years old. After a long illness, it wasn't a long illness, it was cyanide, the Friday after Thanksgiving. The holly bears are prickle, as sharp as any thorn. And Mary bore sweet Jesus Christ on Christmas Day in the morn. They said the cyanide ate out his throat worse than a blowtorch. 
Such a detail is satisfying, but doesn't clear up the mystery. Why? Health, money, hobbies, that voice. Not having that voice makes a big hole here. Without his lead, no man dares take the lower parts. We just wheeze away at the melody with the women. It's as if the floor they put in has been taken away and was standing in air halfway up that old sanctuary. We peek around guiltily, missing Burley's voice. The absence seemed to outnumber the present. We feel insulted, slighted. The dead flee us. The older you get, the more of them snub you. He was rude enough last year, Burley, correcting Hester's tempo. At one point, he even reached over, his face black with impatience, and slapped her hands that were still trying to make sense of the keys. Rise and bake your Christmas bread. Christians rise, the world is bare, and blank and dark with want and care. Yet Christmas comes in the morning. Well, why anything? Why do we come every year, sure as a solstice, to carol these antiquities that if you listen to the words would break your heart? Silence, darkness, Jesus, angels. Better, I suppose, to sing than to listen. Bring, let's bring Bill back up to read our third listener submission, which is called Winning on Jeopardy. And it's by Jonathan Shipley. Thanks, Jonathan. I was poor to begin with. There's no doubt whatever about that. Young I was and poor as a church mouse. Smart though, too. Smart enough to think at least that I could win Jeopardy's college tournament. I was a trivia nut. I knew a lot of things. The countries alphabetically. Who the Secretary of the Interior was. Who wrote my Antonia. And what absolute zero was in degrees Celsius. I also soon learned that I was an absolute zero. I'm one of six kids that lived off a teacher's salary. We were poor. Good Christmas gifts I rarely got. Instead of a Levi's jacket, I'd get an acid wash knockoff. Instead of a bicycle, a pineapple. <laughs> Instead of a trip to Disney World, a snappy pair of underpants. And so it took quite some mustering on my part to ask my parents for the one thing I wanted for Christmas, airfare to Los Angeles to try out for Jeopardy. They said, amazing to me, okay, under two conditions. One, I'd have to fly back the same day. How could they afford a hotel? Two, it would be the only thing I would get for Christmas. The only thing? <laughs> oh no, I would get fame. Glory, and a wad of cash from Alex Trebek. I would be known, adored. My smarts would shine off of me quite smartly. I would be able, after winning, to buy everyone in my family Christmas gifts. My family and my terrible cheating fiance. I have yet to mention my cheating fiance. I wanted to impress her too by winning on Jeopardy. I was a fool to begin with. There is no doubt whatever about that. A fool in love, but yes, also a fool. I would win on that game show and by doing so win back her heart. I would get to shake Trebek's hand and then take my fiance's hand in holy matrimony. There's nothing better than winning on a game show except sweet, sweet love from a lying, conniving woman who cheated on me repeatedly and whom I always forgave and kept coming back to. Oh, sweet bliss. Oh, blessed euphoria. I love you, I told her before heading to the airport. Okay, she said. Such besotted words, honey-drenched words, my beloved, an angel of delight. The holidays bring our loved ones closer, do they not? I flew away. The test was harder than I imagined. Alex didn't even make an appearance. I didn't get past the first round of testing. It took all of 20 minutes. I grabbed a taxi back to the airport and flew home 
dejected, abysmally dejected. What a failure. It was two days before Christmas. It was Christmas Eve when my fiance broke up with me. She handed back to me the ring outside in front of twinkle lights and ribbon garland. It was wretchedly cold. Also, the weather was bad. A failure two times over in as many days, Christmas morning came. A wondrous morn to, well, mourn. I did not win on Jeopardy. I did not have a fiancé who loved me whom I was to marry. A merry Christmas indeed. In front of all my siblings that morning were stacks of presents. In front of me, nothing. I was to get nothing for Christmas. My family had told me so. It was the year I thought that at least underpants would make a good gift. <laughs> at the very least that, underpants. But no, there was nothing under the tree for me but a broken loser heart. That and the knowledge of what absolute zero was, negative 273.15 degrees Celsius. Look it up in a book and you'll see a picture of me that one bright, beautiful Christmas morn. <laughs> Sorry, Jonathan. Well, we asked for stories of mishap and mayhem, and that certainly qualifies. Well, for our last story of the evening, one of our perennial favorites, Jeanette Winterson, amazed us with her semi-autobiographical first novel, Oranges Are Not the Only Fruit, which was followed by her second novel, Sexing the Cherry. But to our ongoing delight, to this day, Winterson writes a holiday story every year. A couple years ago, she released a collection of these stories uh, called Christmas Days. And we've read them in the past, over the last five or six years. I think we've chosen two or three of them. Well, tonight's tale, however, has never appeared in print. And I was searching for something last August. And I ran across her website. And on the website, she just had one story called An Xmas Story. It's never been published, but I think it's one of her best. And here's Julie Brisbane bringing us home. In the garden, there was a fairy. Well, this was unexpected. As surprising as the appearance of the fairy, was the size of the fairy, because I always thought that fairies were little, members of the little people. Well, this fairy was about eight feet tall. I rang my sister. I said, there's an eight-foot fairy in the garden. She said, well, we're all getting taller. Look at the Chinese. <laughs> well, do you mean that fairies are eating more meat and dairy? Well, she's not a fairy. She's obviously something to do with charity. Go and give her some money. I got my purse and went into the garden. I saw that the fairy had a Christmas tree on top of her head. Now, the tree was small, about the size of a guardsman's busby, sprucey and green. The fairy said, I am the Christmas fairy. I didn't say anything because it was the kind of introduction that was more of an announcement. <laughs> Looking at her, it seemed likely that she was telling the truth, though what kind of truth was less clear. I said, but I am Mrs. Snow. Well, the fairy looked pleased to meet someone in the right reference range for Yuletide events. <laughs> In December, whenever I go about my business and say that I am Mrs. Snow, everybody makes a joke. When I slipped on the ice last year and broke my arm, the young doctor who strapped me up said, snow has fallen, snow on snow. <laughs> we agreed that in the bleak midwinter was our favorite carol. Snow on snow on snow is the right kind of repetition because as you say it, or sing it, the snow is falling onto your tongue in unrepeatable fractals of beauty. Say it once and it's gone forever. That symmetry of snow. 
I find it hard to believe that every snowflake is different, but truth is hard to believe. Which leads us back to the fairy. <laughs> Not that she had gone anywhere. She was standing in the garden by the pond of ice with the sprucy Christmas tree busby on her head. I said, aren't you supposed to be the other way around? She somersaulted into a handstand. I saw that her feet were bare strong and clean and bare. Uh, traditionally, I said, the fairy is on top of the tree. She sprung back upright. Traditionally, she said, there was a Santa Claus coming down the chimney and Jesus in a manger. There were wise men. There was a star. There was a reindeer called Rudolph. Traditionally, there was a light in the window that was the light of the world. I looked back at my cottage. I live in a remote cottage hard by a deep wood. I keep a light in the window because there is a part of me that believes that the light will attract something. I don't know what. Something that isn't a moth. I keep the light lit because I don't want to accept the inevitability of darkness. Especially today, which is the shortest day of the year, December 21st the solstice, the day the sun stands still. That's why I'm here, said the fairy. I saw your light. Well, would you like to come inside? Possibly, said the fairy. We look towards the house, towards the open back door. I leave it open to let out the past and to let in the future. An airflow of time. My heart was broken recently, and I keep the pieces on the back step in a bucket. A heart can mend, but unlike the liver, it cannot regenerate. A heart mends, but the brake line is always visible. But humans are not salamanders. Salamanders grow new limbs. A broken heart will mend in time, but one of the contradictions of being human is that we have so little time for the mending we must do. It takes years to know anything, years to achieve anything, years to learn how to love, years to learn how to let love go when it is worn out, years to find that loneliness is the name for the intense secret you can't share, years to share what you can share, years to be hurt, years to heal. I keep my heart on the back step in a bucket because I don't know where else to keep it. I'm not avoiding it. I go in and out right past it every day, but I have duties in the world like everyone else, and for that I need my functional heart. My functional heart is fine. You know, here it is in my body under the sternum to the left, beating once every eight-tenths of a second, pumping eight pints of blood round my body. But there is more to us than function. The heart is more than a pump made of muscle. Human beings are symmetrical. We have two of everything. My other heart is the one that bleeds and breaks and beats for love. The sacred heart of religion and passion that Cro-Magnon man or woman painted on a cave in Spain 50,000 years ago. The mind didn't put love in our hearts. We found it there. What are you worrying about, said the fairy. Love. It's a strange story. An unmarried woman sits at the table. The men have gone back to work. The house is still. Unwashed dishes wait to be washed. She's reading. The table trembles, a stack of plates breaks. She gets under the table as the clay wall of the house goes dark, like it's filling with water. As she crouches there, she sees feet. She sees beautiful feet, strong like an animal, bare like a dancer. She touches the toe of the foot and finds it like the stone gods in the Roman temple where she's not supposed to go, but where she goes because of the statues. She talks to them about her troubles, not knowing that one day 
The women of the world will bring their troubles to a statue in her image. Mary, says the voice that is the feet. Good tidings of great joy. She is the first to know that the world will change forever and it starts with her. The fairy said, well, like all important things, it happened by chance. Are you religious? I said. Well, that's a category error. I'm a fairy. <laughs> well, it's a good story, the Christmas story. It starts with a demand for money. Everyone goes to their own town to be taxed, and it ends with a gift, the gift of a child. You don't have to be religious to like the challenge of that. Demands versus gifts, money versus what is beyond price. What you risk reveals what you value, said the fairy. Well, what does the Christmas story tell us about risk? Risk everything. There's no other way. I thought of them in the stable, under the animal's breath, lying on straw, waiting for a birth outcast and outside, drinking water from an animal trough, soaking the straw under her body with blood and water, Joseph trusting the truth of her body, the truth of the baby, believing the incredible that this child born under a star will pull the world towards him like a gravity field, unseen, unknown, but felt. The fields outside are silent in the night. Joseph believes, but his heart is broken too, because this isn't his baby, and all the gold and frankincense and myrrh they bring can't change that. He will live with this loss all of his life. Christmas is the festival of broken hearts, said the fairy. Bring your losses here under this star. Are you collecting for charity? Where's your bucket? Here's two pounds. I have to go inside and make mince pies. I'll come with you, said the fairy. And the bucket is by your back door. We went up the steps of my rackety porch, its sides sheeted in tin, its roof a rough tin curve where the rain runs off. I wish my heart had such a shelter. I wish I could shelter my heart from loss. Not possible, said the fairy. That's why I am here. The fairy dipped into the bucket and lifted out my heart, beating hard, so hard that if you hold it in both hands and try to stop it, it won't be stopped. The strongest man cannot quell the beat of a heart held in both hands. Such pain. Long lines of tiny needlepoint script, the punctured language of loss. This rough cloth of my heart is pierced through with holes and stitching. It is a hard-working heart. The workings of it are visible if you look. The chambers, the aorta, the live bloody surface with its stories round and round. Turn me over in your hands and read my heart. This is the condition of being alive, said the fairy. This raw mass of feeling pulled into a story. You begin under a star. Your nativity is your own telling. And there is no story that is not the story of a broken heart. I loved her, I said. Is that us in the night-soaked bed? Is that us holding hands under the table? Is that us leaving work early to meet where we won't be recognized? Is that us crossing the bridge from the other side until we see each other? I run into your arms in the middle. I love your arms around me. The thud of your heart where you ran towards me. I remember watching you walk up the street until you disappeared into the crowds. I thought, the end of love will be like this. And it was. In this night-soaked bed with you, it is courage for the day I seek. 
courage that when the light comes, I will turn towards it. Nothing could be simpler. Nothing could be harder. I love you. The three most difficult words in the world. December 21st is a fire festival. Light what you can to keep the dark at bay, to say that the dark is temporary and the light returns. This is the shortest day, said the fairy. Now the world turns. Turn with it. And I thought that they understood the human heart, the ancients who joined the Christmas festival with the older Saturnalia, the festival of light. Humankind cannot bear too much darkness. There must be hope, and hope must be visible. Light the fire, heat the stove, open the bottle, bear the child, find the beginning. I went out. Snow was falling, snow on snow. Snow like a reminder, snow like a warning, and in the wood, a red fox like a moving fire. Christmas is a birth story, a love story, a lost story, an impossible story. None of it is possible. Stars, shepherds, wise men, virgin birth, angels. We celebrate it because we still believe that only the impossible is worth the effort. I have to go now, said the fairy. Merry Christmas. I don't know which way she went. The snow was thick outside by now and she left no prints. I took my heart inside, brushing the snow off the top of the bucket. The shortest day. Christmas, always a new beginning, a different end.